Now, going into our priest today, for those of you who don't know, we've been going through the book of Galatians. So if you have your Bibles here, I always recommend that you do have your own Bibles so that you can just track with me. You can also go home and, and see what you've underlined and just spend some time going deeper into what God is saying to you. But I will be the first to admit that when it comes to certain rules, I am a stickler for certain rules. And then there are, there are other rules where I am a, a lot less kind of, you know, invested and I'm a lot more flexible around those rules. But when it comes to the rules that I think everyone should obey, I can get quite frustrated. Let me give you an example. So um, as we go in our mornings on our way to school, everyone is going to school, everyone is going to work at the same time. And so all the traffic gets focused on one or two main roads exiting our suburb. And so as you can imagine, every single morning, there is a queue of cars. And for us to get through that main robot, it takes about three to four robot cycles. And so every morning, I prepare myself to see that queue of cars and just to pray to the Lord to give me great patience, all right, as we are there. And the main reason is not because I have to wait, but because some people are not praying to the Lord for patience and they look for oncoming traffic and when they see a gap, they take it. And so when the cars come, they can just zip into one of the side lanes and then on the other side of where I'm in my queue is some felt. So others are saying, I'm not gonna gap, but I'm just gonna take the big gap over here and go into swat copies from there. And the biggest problem with all of that is I am obeying the rules and I'm desperately unhappy. They're disobeying the rules and they are happy as anything. Now, I bring the story up because when Paul is writing to the church in Galatia, he's talking to them with regards to their relationship to rules. In this particular case, this church was not kind of like the Corinthian church. This wasn't a church guilty of breaking the rules. But this was a church that was adding unnecessary rules and baggage to faith in Christ. Basically what had happened, guys, we covered a lot of ground and I'm not gonna be able to cover all of that this morning. But Paul had planted these churches around Galatia. He had gone back to Jerusalem. Most of the people who came to faith in Christ were Gentiles, meaning they were non-Christians or non-Jews. They came to faith in Christ. And as Paul left, a new leadership stepped in. And they came from the Pharisaic Judaism background. And they came to Christ, but they brought with them the expectation and the understanding that yes, you must come to faith in Jesus. And on top of all of that, you need to obey all the laws and all the rules of the Old Testament. And so Paul is so upset about this because on one hand he's saying, this is not just like a different version of the gospel and, and you've got your perspective and I've got my perspective. He says, this is no gospel at all. This is a perverse and a perverted gospel. And so Paul is pretty upset with regards to what it's doing to the faith system of those in the church and also how it is dividing the church. And so the book of Galatians is not a really easy book to read because Paul is pretty worked up. But having said that, I still believe that all of these messages have something for us today. 
And as we keep that in mind and try and apply God's word to us, I pray that you have an open heart to what God is wanting to say to you this morning. So we're in the middle of Galatians chapter four, and we're gonna be reading a number of verses at the time and just commenting on them as we go. So Galatians chapter four, verse eight. Paul writes to them and he says, "'Formerly when you did not know God, "'you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods.'" So once again, he is writing to those who didn't come from a Jewish background, but a pagan background, worshiping the various Roman and Greek gods. And he's saying, when you were in that system, you did not truly know God. In fact, this system is a system of idolatry. And so he's reminding them, this is where you're coming from. Now verse nine, but now that you do know God, how do we know God? We know God in Jesus Christ. Now that you do know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Now, sometimes I too am guilty of just kind of, here's my Bible reading planned for the day and I just need to make sure I read the verses and I'm sure that God is up there watching me read the verses and God is ticking off that little box that says that Stephen read the verses. And the problem is when we read like that, we miss so much. So I had to go over these verses a number of times until something started jumping out at me and it created a bit of a problem for me. See, Paul has just said, hey, you guys have come from this pagan background where you didn't know God. Then you came to know God truly in Christ, and now you're going back to the slavery. But if you've been tracking with us, and if you know anything about the book of Galatians, as I mentioned earlier, these people who were new in faith in Christ were not going back to their pagan religion. They were going back to this kind of Judaism, Christianity in a blender form of Christianity. And so I thought to myself, why does Paul say you're going back to these miserable forces if they're not? So I read it again. Read it again, there must be something I'm missing out on. And then I thought, well, let me go to people who are far more intelligent than I am and let's see what they have to say. And they pointed out that I was indeed seeing what Paul is wanting us to see. I just was confused as to the point that Paul was trying to make. And the point that Paul is trying to make is actually deeply insulting to the church. He's saying, listen, if you go from a genuine encounter with Christ and a genuine faith in Christ alone and you start adding these laws to it, Jesus plus Moses, Jesus plus the Old Testament, it is as bad as if you went back to your pagan gods. It's like mic drop moments, right? All right, people aren't shouting amen after Paul had that to say. He's not pulling his punches, but he's trying to wake them up to something here. And he's desperate that they see and understand the truth. So reading again from verse 10, you're observing special days and months and seasons and years. You're getting stuck into the legalism. And I fear for you that somehow I've wasted my efforts. Sure. I've been wasting my time with you here, guys. And I know Paul is being so super direct to this church, but I pray in the same way that as we continue trying to understand what is going on here, that we can see how relevant it is for us as well. Reading from verse 12, I plead with you, brothers and sisters, become like me for I became like you. You did me no wrong. 
as you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. And even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. So that's how Paul started his relationship with these Galatians. They were so grateful to him because he brought them the truth that gave them freedom. And because of that, they showed Paul great favor and great honor, but that is not how it stayed. Where then is your blessing of me now? Because I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? I think Paul has experienced what many pastors and many leaders in churches have sometimes experienced. Where someone joins the faith or joins the church and they're like, oh, this is pure life to me. I just love the truth. I love the heart of God that I'm receiving here. And what started happening to these people is that they started slowly shifting and migrating away from what Paul had taught them. But Paul didn't shift and migrate away from what he had originally taught. When it got to the point that the truth was frustrating to them, they were irritated by the truth. And so what did they do? They canceled Paul. They shot the messenger. Now let's carry on reading. These people, referring to these Jewish leaders who are coming in, these people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us. You know, divide the herd, divide and conquer, so that you may have zeal for them. It is fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good. And to be so always, not just when I am with you, but my dear children, my dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Here you really see the heart of Paul. See, Paul is pouring out his pain and he's saying, I am experiencing pain. I know many of you have experienced the physical pain of childbirth. And even with you know, a spinal block and, and even with C-sections, it is always an incredibly painful experience, but it is worth it. Why? Because of the life that it is producing. And so Paul in some ways is alluding to the fact that when they came to faith, they were like these newborn children and just like having newborn children in the home, it's not easy. It is really, really difficult. Paul felt like that with them and just like you hope that your little one's gonna go from nappies to sitting, to crawling, to walking, to jumping, and eventually getting their own life on track, Paul's saying it's like you guys climbed back into the womb because I'm going through this birth pain again and again and again. Paul's not upset because he's offended by them or his feelings are hurt. He's saying, I'm going through this because I want to see Christ formed in you, but somehow you're not running with it and you're not allowing that life to get formed in you. And so he says, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I am perplexed about you. Now, just so that you know, 
up to this point, we've been dealing with some pretty heavy theology, with some pretty heavy tone from Paul, and we've been confronting some pretty heavy things in us. As of next week, I just want to let you know, in case you're getting really tired of, you know, bad mood Paul, all right, the tone kind of changes as of next week onwards, and then Paul moves to where he wants the people to go, and the life that he wants for them and the freedom that he wants for them, just so that you know where we're going in this. But when I look at this passage, and this is where it gets real for us, I see three dangers that you and I here now in 2022 need to be so vigilant about. Knowing that Paul is not kind of saying, hey guys, you know, this is kind of, you know, if you've got some time, think about what I've got to say. No, he's like seeing these guys running for the edge of the cliff that they don't know he's there. And Paul is running in and trying to snatch them back from a really devastating end in their faith walk and faith journey. And so we've got to take these reminders so seriously. And so the first danger that I believe we can think about for ourselves today is the slippery slope to legalism. The slippery slope to legalism. Now to help me out, I wanna refer to a story that Jesus told. It's a story that we regularly refer to here at Riverside and for good reason. There is so much in it and it is probably also the most well-known of Jesus' stories. It's a story in Luke 15 known as the prodigal son. Now, just to get us all on the same page, in brief, what the story is about is this family who had this great thing going. They had a farm and they had a business going on there. There were two sons. The youngest son is just tired of it. He's tired of doing the family thing. He's tired of the family reputation. He sees the world and, oh, the world looks like that's where life is. That's where I'm going to spend the rest of my life. Dad, I can't wait for you to die. Give me your inheritance now that I can go and do what I wanna do. So with a broken heart, that's exactly what the father did and gave, gave this to his son who went out and to be expected, blew it all. And for a short season, he was living the perfect life. He was going to the right parties. He had the right friends. He had the right girls around him until the money ran out. And what is interesting was when he started to hit rock bottom and he was completely abandoned, what came to his mind wasn't the party days. What came to his mind was home. But he was just so aware, I've messed up so badly. I've really thrown away the name of my family. I've wasted all of my father's money and I've shamed him. So I can't go back as a son. I'm gonna go back and just ask for a job. And maybe I can just be a servant in the home of my father. So as he walks home, he's resolved that this is what he's gonna say to his father. And as his father sees him, he runs towards him. His son doesn't even get the first words out before he says, I love you. Here is the ring of sonship and the robe that I'm gonna place on your shoulders. Come, let's throw a big party because my son was dead, but now he is alive. So that's the youngest son. That is the son that many of us are familiar with, but there was another son. He was the one who stayed behind. He was the one who said, I'm not gonna be like that guy. He obeyed all the rules. He was the one who said, I know that my father is proud of me because of all that I have done. 
I'm not putting one foot out of place. When his brother comes home, instead of being overjoyed that his brother is back, he's so angry. There's a party that starts going on as people hear that this big, you know, this big fattened calf has been put on the spit bra and everybody's coming back to celebrate and he's staying outside. So the father goes outside and starts to reason with him. You see, he was the anti-prodigal son. And he says, listen, you're throwing such a big party for my brother and yet you don't even give me a few choppies to have a bra with my friends. So what's going on here? So that's kind of how the story ends with this tension. But what most of us don't know is why Jesus told this story. Jesus didn't like randomly walk around just spouting forth these stories. There was a context. And the context, if you read at the beginning of Luke chapter 15 is, Jesus is preaching out there in the fields and crowds are coming to him and they are hearing the good news of the kingdom. The problem is all of these crowds were not all the churchy people. They were the sinners and the outcasts and the least of these and tax collectors. But they loved Jesus. So Jesus always had walking kind of in the background of wherever he went were these disgruntled Jewish leaders. Because they were so upset about how, you know, they'd been trying so hard to get people to buy into what they were teaching. And now Jesus comes along and he takes all the glory and all the focus. And so they're standing at the back and they're saying, how is it that this guy can be around these people? And he hangs out with them and he's friends with them and he enjoys them and they enjoy him and he eats meals with them. And Jesus, knowing what is going on in their conversation, he starts to tell these stories. And so Jesus is telling the story, yes, there is the younger brother and that represents the people before him. But what he's really saying is, you guys in the back row, you're the older brother. Now, if there's, there's many books that I try and recommend to you from time to time, one of them is a book called Prodigal God by Timothy Keller. It is in our library, available after the service. It is one of our most read books. But in that book, Timothy Keller makes the point, he says, there is more than one way to be far from God. The one way is the obvious way. It's the younger brother way. It's the way of the flesh. It's the way of the world. Sex and the world and parties and women and drugs and rock and roll and all those kinds of things. But he says the older brother was equally far from his father's heart. It just looked very different because he was the good boy and he obeyed all the rules. And yet there was something so profound that he just couldn't get when it came to his father's heart for his younger brother. And so he says this, he says, religious people commonly live very moral lives. But their goal is to get leverage over God and to control Him, to put Him in a position where they think He owes them. Therefore, despite all their ethical fastidiousness and piety, they are actually rebelling against His authority. And this is why Paul is so upset because these Galatians think that by taking their salvation in Christ and adding the law on top of that, the law in the Bible 
they think that's moving them towards God. Paul knows it's gonna move them away from God. This is why John Ortberg, he says, one of the hardest things in the world is to stop being the prodigal son without turning into the older brother. So at this point, I know because people often ask me about this, Stephen, are you saying that we need to kind of be like more like the younger brother? Because he seems to be the one that had a great encounter with the father. Are you saying that being a good person and then having morality and, and keeping the rules, are you saying that that's not where I need to be? And I'm not saying that at all. But I do wanna talk just maybe to help us out if you're wrestling with that. I wanna talk about the difference between legalism and discipline. Jesus was extremely disciplined. Paul was extremely disciplined, but they weren't legalists. So what is the difference? Well, discipline prioritizes discipleship. Legalism prioritizes the law. Even if you look at the word discipline and discipleship. See, discipleship is all about following Jesus. And as I follow and obey Jesus, something is happening in me and I'm being transformed. So I'm gonna choose to do certain things that are gonna move me towards who Jesus wants me to be, not away from that. And so we freely choose a disciplined life, whereas legalism prioritizes the law. These are the rules and you must obey the rules. Discipline involves effort. Legalism involves earning. Guys, if you've ever tried to follow Jesus for one day and obey Him fully for one day, and I don't just mean not doing all the prodigal son stuff, but being fully obedient to God completely for one day, you will know that it takes a lot of efforts. But there's a world of a difference between efforts and earning. The, the younger brother is saying, you owe me because of how I've obeyed your rules. And there's a world of a difference between that. Thirdly, discipline is motivated by love. Legalism is motivated by pride or fear. Just think about marriage. There's kind of two ways to think about being faithful to your spouse. The one way is you are faithful to your spouse because that's the rule for married people. Or you can be faithful to your spouse because you love them. Legalism couldn't care about the motive. Couldn't care about the heart as long as you do the right thing. And Jesus and Paul are saying, yeah, yeah, but now your heart, your heart is missing the heart of the Father. Whereas those who live a disciplined life and choose, yes, to live by certain ways, they do that because of their love for Jesus Christ. Fourthly, and finally, discipline is about formation. Legalism is about stagnation. You see, formation is all about this is who I am in Christ. 
This is who I am becoming. I am always a student. I am always an apprentice of Jesus. I am always recognizing where I am falling short. I'm always walking more towards who Jesus is and who He wants me to be. I am constantly being formed inside out according to the image of God in Jesus Christ. Legalism, they've got their 30 rules and I've obeyed the rules. Therefore, I am in right standing with God. What Paul is trying to get the church and us to understand is that the enemy of grace and the enemy of the gospel is not discipline, but legalism most certainly is an enemy of grace and an enemy of the gospel. So we need to be careful of the slippery slope towards legalism. Secondly, what I see in this text with regard to how they treated Paul is the slippery slope to hardness of hearts. See, at some point, these people came to see Jesus for who he was. To quote the song that we sang earlier, they found your love, Jesus. They experienced grace and salvation. They experienced the wonder of knowing God and being known by God in such a beautiful, wonderful way. But then over time, and especially because of these leaders coming into the church, their hearts started shifting. And I wanted to show you what the slippery slope looked like. They started off by stopping to depend on God so that they could depend on the rules. That leads to stopping to appreciate grace because I'm earning favor, which leads to stop stopping to receive love because I don't need to receive forgiveness from God because I'm a good person. And because I stop receiving love, I stop giving love and grace. Definition of a hard heart. See, Paul is analyzing why they are so vengeful towards him. And he is recognizing that in this whole system of adding law to faith in Christ, their hearts had become hardened, not only to the things of God, but to the people around them, including in this case, their spiritual father. And where at one stage, they were only so happy to receive truth and guidance from Paul, because of their hard hearts, they now resented him for exactly the same thing. So maybe for us, if you're unsure about whether or not your heart is maybe hardening in a slippery way, maybe we can see how we treat others. And maybe that's a reflection of our heart towards God. How do we treat those who are breaking the rules? How do we treat those who keep the rules? They now, my new mates. It's the new in and out. How do I treat myself when I break the rules? How do I treat myself when I keep the rules? How do I treat those who are bringing God's word to us? Who are trying to speak truth into our lives and we reject them like they're doing here to Paul, 
Paul is saying maybe that's because your hearts are hardening and we need to think very seriously about what's going on here. So that's the second slippery slope. The third one is the slippery slope to misguided zeal. See, Paul says, listen, there's nothing wrong with zeal, being passionate about the things of God, provided you're zealous about the right things. What had happened in this church is, at first they were zealous and passionate for the things of the gospel, for the things of Jesus Christ. And they were willing to risk everything and all for that. But as their hearts started cooling down, and as they started drifting towards legalism, you see, when we stop being zealous for the things of God, we're just gonna replace that position in our lives with something else. So if we're more the younger brother type, yes, I had this warm encounter of grace in Jesus Christ and I was so passionate about that, but that zeal is gone and now I've replaced that zeal with the things of the world. Not all of them are bad things, but you've placed, we've replaced the zeal for God with zeal for hobbies, zeal for sports, zeal for sex, zeal for things of the flesh, zeal for money, zeal for work. And some of those are good things if they are under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. But these were taking now a primary space in their hearts. Or if you're more of an older brother type, and this is where it gets so tricky, we take the zeal that we had for Jesus and His grace and the gospel and we replace it with the zeal we have for our favorite rules. And you become like me on a Monday morning when the guy's driving through the felts. And we're so desperately unhappy when we're surrounded by people who are breaking the rules. Or... We replace the zeal that we have for the gospel with a zeal and a passion for our pet doctrines. Our favorite little doctrines that we use to judge people with. Who are the new in and the new out? Do they believe in this or that? And based on that, I'm willing to defend that you know, to the end and I'm gonna go on YouTube and I'm gonna debate and I'm gonna divide churches and I'm gonna divide families with this zeal that I have for something that is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. They've got the truth of God without the heart of God. These guys are becoming Bible watchdogs who just love biting people. Eugene Peterson, he asks the following question. In a book called The Jesus Way, he asks the question, and maybe this will help you. How do you know if you're a Pharisee? How do you know if you're on one of these slippery slopes? And so I wanna quote something to you. It's quite a long quote. The words won't be on the screen, but just maybe close your eyes and look at the picture on the screen as he says this. He says, imagine yourself moving into a house with a huge picture window overlooking a grand view across a wide expanse of water, enclosed by a range of snow-capped mountains. Oh, amen, praise the Lord, don't I wish I was there. You have a ringside seat before wild storms and cloud formations. The entire spectrum of sun-illuminated colors in the rocks and trees and wildflowers and water. You are captivated by the view. 
several times a day, you interrupt your work and stand before this window to take in the majesty and the beauty, thrilled with the botanical and meteorological fireworks. But one afternoon, you notice some bird droppings on the window glass, so you get a bucket of water and a towel and you clean it. A couple of days later, a rainstorm leaves the window streaked and the bucket comes out again. Another day, visitors come with a tribe of small, dirty-fingered children. And the moment they leave you, sorry, the moment they leave, you see all the smudge marks on the glass. They are hardly out the door before you have the bucket out. You are so proud of that window, and it's such a large window. But it's incredible how many different ways foreign objects can attach themselves to that window, obscuring the vision and distracting from the contemplative beauty. Keeping that window clean develops into an obsessive compulsive neurosis. You accumulate ladders and buckets and squeegees. You construct a scaffolding inside and out to make it possible to get to all the difficult corners and heights. You have the cleanest window in North America, but now it has been years since you've looked through it. You've become a Pharisee. You know, one of the saddest things about the parable, and this is Jesus' pure genius. The story ends with two brothers. And with respect to these brothers' experience of their father's love and, and grace and gratitude, the younger brother, who did all these things wrong, he is the one in the party. And the older brother is the one out the party. Can you imagine those Pharisees getting the subtext from Jesus as he tells the story? All these younger brothers in front of you that you're despising, they're gonna experience the kingdom of God. And the real question is, will you? Or are you going to remain by your own volition outside of the party? And that's where the story ends. Now, if we find our hearts drifting towards a slippery slope of legalism or the slippery slope of a hardened heart or the slippery slope of misguided zeal, how are we to respond? And I think if I had to ask you, well, how do you think the older brother ought to have responded? That in turn becomes our response. I think if we could finish off the story so that both brothers were in the party, of the older brother, we would have said, well, he needed to receive the truth that his father's love had nothing to do with his rule keeping. Paul's not saying rule keeping is a bad thing. It's just not how you get your father's love. Secondly, he would have had to receive the truth that his earning mentality had stopped him from receiving what his father wanted to give him. I want to read you the final verse of the story. Luke 15, 31. My son, the father said, but you are always with me and everything I have is yours. And because of the way this son believed 
that his relationship with his father was formed and how favor was earned, he missed out on knowing this version of his father. He missed out on enjoying all that his father truly had available to him. And so he would have had to receive the truth that his earning mentality has stopped him from receiving what his father wanted to give him. Number three, and this is about a well duh moment, but he would have had to humble himself and enter the party. I'm sure by that stage, the younger son knew exactly where his older brother stood, right? And everyone in the party would have been, where's the older brother? Where's the older brother? Oh, there he is outside looking like a thunderstorm. Now he's having this big moment with dad. So if he walked into the party, he truly would have had to humble himself, right? And then number four, he would have had to celebrate his father's grace shown to people he used to despise. You see, what he didn't know was that he needed grace just as much as his brother. He needed the gospel just as much as his brother needed the gospel. And so for us, especially if you've been a Christian for any period of time, this slippery slope is so easy. I see this in my heart every single day. And I see the consequences of my heart's state when I go there how I am cutting myself off from receiving from my Father. Because I believe I've earned His love and He owes me. And when things go wrong, well, how could you let this happen to me? I've been such a good person. Makes so much sense to me, just not to the gospel. And so I wanna suggest to every single one of us that as it sinks into us, that my Father's love has nothing to do with how many rules I've kept or how many rules I've broken. And that, man, I don't earn grace. It is just given. I don't earn love. It is just simply given because that's who my Father is. And for some of us, listen, it wouldn't have been okay if He truly wanted to, I'm gonna use a very Christian word, if He truly wanted to repent, meaning to turn from, and to turn towards, if he was truly to repent, it couldn't have simply happened in his heart, he would have had to do something about it, and that is enter the party. Eating humble pie, and then split bride. <laughs> and for some of us, I don't know what that means, but I've been outside, and everyone knows it, and, and I wanna step inside, and I know they're gonna see me as the grouchy guy, but man, maybe it can start a new chapter in my life. And then finally, how do I celebrate the younger brothers on the world? How do I celebrate the grace that my father truly gives all those that he loves? And so Father, as we allow your spirit to convict us with great wisdom and great accuracy and great love, just as much as you reasoned with the older brother, you come and reason with us. And Father, if we take what Paul is saying here seriously, 
Maybe I haven't fully appreciated how dangerous the slippery slope to legalism truly is. And maybe Paul has had to be forthright and direct and borderline insulting to help me see how dangerous this truly is. And so Lord, I'm listening and I'm willing to hear you and receive from you. I need the gospel. I need what only you freely give because of who you are. And maybe the Lord is just giving you a sense of what that humbling yourself is going to look like practically. And how you can start celebrating just the goodness of God in people's lives. People who maybe, yes, break all the rules. Just like this, this son, just people who have maybe embarrassed you or have taken from what is yours. How do you become this older brother to celebrate? To celebrate that they were lost, but now they're found. Father, I really pray for the accuracy that only you and your spirit can provide as we've come and stood before your word this morning. Give us great humility. Give us the gift of repentance. Break our hearts. Break our hearts. Pry open our fingers off of these rules that we put in the way between my heart and your heart and my heart and others. Lord, I pray that even now, a fresh sense of that grace that I once knew is now being made available to me. I'm starting to taste and see that the grace of our God is good. And Lord, I pray for the courage of our convictions as we do respond to you this morning. With regards to our next steps, we pray for great grace and great wisdom. Yes, Lord. So Father God, I pray that this is once again a sermon that never ends, that your spirit continues to minister to our hearts, continues to shape us and move us towards the heart of the Father. And as we decidedly follow you, Jesus, may that look like something. So God, we trust you with the conviction. We also trust you with our futures with our own heart transformation. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.